We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ's likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Oftentimes, your expectations uh, are what lead to some conflict uh, in your home, right? So you have expectations about how the other people living in your home with you uh, should do things, and then when those expectations aren't met, what tends to happen is conflict, is tension, right? And we have expectations in other areas of, of life as well. When we go throughout our day, we have all sorts of expectations. When we go throughout our daily routines, we expect things to go a certain way. An expectation is the belief that something should happen in a certain way. And so expectations can often uh, make us miss something important. Uh, expectations uh, can, can sometimes blind us to what is actually happening or to what is actually true uh, because sometimes our expectations don't line up with reality. Uh, so I, I remember uh, my grandmother told me this story uh, several times she's told me this story, but uh, she, she, she's not the greatest driver in the world. Um, I love her to death, but she's not, the, she's not the best driver. There was this one time where she uh, fell asleep while she was driving on the highway. She had brought my uncle along with her to keep her awake. Well, and he decided, you know, I'm going to take a quick little snooze. And she expected that because he was with her, she would stay awake as well. Well, they woke up in the middle of the highway in the median there, driving 70 miles per hour, still going at that speed because the cruise control was on. And then they shift, she just shifted back over after she woke up, and they kept going. And, and so she had expected that he would keep her awake, and that didn't really happen. Well, you know, some, some other car stories that she's been involved with, um, there are many of them. Um, and I got her permission to share this, so, you know. Um, but there are several times where she has backed into something because she didn't expect it to be there. Um, so... My, my grandfather was a highway patrolman his whole career, so for decades he was serving with the highway patrol in Missouri, and he would always park his patrol car in their driveway behind his pickup truck, because the, the idea was that the pickup truck would, would alert grandma to the fact that there is something there that is important, and hopefully the patrol car wouldn't get hit. Well, one morning my grandfather had to go attend a funeral out of town, so he took his pick, pickup truck. Well... My grandma and I share this problem where we both think that we can do more in the allotted amount of time that we have than we can actually accomplish, which often results in us running a few minutes behind. Uh, and so grandma is, is very often in a hurry when she's leaving her house. And so she gets in her car, and she's backing out, and she doesn't see the truck there, and so she just keeps going, and <laughs> crash. And Grandpa comes home to his lieutenant and his captain in his driveway laughing about what has just happened because his mirror is hanging down and there are scratches on the side of his car. And Grandma's excuse was, well, well Larry, it, it, it was so white and the sun was just kind of reflecting off it and I, I just couldn't see it. And he said, okay, you know. Well, a few months later, 
Grandpa has gotten a promotion at work and he has received a, a brand new blue patrol vehicle. Okay, so once again, Grandpa is somewhere else with his truck and Grandma is in a hurry because they're supposed to meet some people somewhere and she's backing out and sure enough, crash. And Grandpa gets home and, and he says, well, this one was blue. Not the end of the story. Years down the road, <laughs> she, she, they're purchasing a new vehicle for her, and the one thing she insists on is a backup camera. And you all know exactly why now. And so she insists on having the backup camera, and Grandpa's like, okay, I think that's a good idea too. Yeah. And so she gets the backup camera on her new Ford Edge, and, and sure enough, you know, one, one morning she's in a hurry and she gets in her car and she starts to back up and she hears a beep, 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 beep. And she realizes, oh, the garage door is still down. <laughs> so she hits her garage door button and then she hears screech as it goes up the back of her tailgate and scratches the whole thing. Grandpa hears this from inside the house and comes outside and he says, well, you said you wanted one. You didn't say that you'd use it. You see, expectations can sometimes make us miss something. Whenever my grandmother was getting in her vehicle, she was not expecting something to be behind her, and so she missed it. And similarly, uh, with, with the Jewish people and their expectations of the Messiah, they had some expectations that made them miss some things when John and then Jesus after him show up on the scene. And similarly with you and I, when we think about God and we think about who he is and what he does, and when we think about uh, all of these things, we sometimes have some expectations that can make us miss the reality. And so I think we're going to see that today as we look at a few things about expectations, as we look at expectations about the Christ, expectations of good news, and expectations about God. So look with me at Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Here's what Luke writes for us. John the Baptist has just, uh, has just confronted the people through his preaching very boldly, called them sons of the devil, and told them to repent. And then uh, the people are actually responding to the message. And as the people were in expectation, Luke says, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, so, so the people have heard John preach this message, and there's this great response to it. Lots of people are coming to be baptized by John, this, this kind of eccentric prophet who's been living in the wilderness, and he, he wears very raggedy old clothes that uh, you, you would expect only of a prophet, and then he, he's kind of a peculiar guy where he, he, he kind of takes locusts and he dips them in honey, and that's his idea of a snack. And so John is this very peculiar man, and it's clear to the people that he is a prophet sent from God, and as he's preaching, the people are coming to hear what he has to say. The reason they're so interested in what John has to say is because for 400 years or so, they've heard nothing from God in terms of a word from him. He's not sent prophets to speak to them. They've, of course, had the scriptures that were already revealed in the Old Testament, but they hadn't had prophets continuing to speak to them. 
And John shows up, and he's a prophet of God, and it's clear that he's come in the same way that Elijah and the other prophets had to speak for God to God's people for their good. And so the people are coming to hear him, and as they see him preaching boldly, confronting the people's sin, calling them to repent and turn back to God, and they see him baptizing so many people, they, they think that he might just be the Christ that was promised. He might be the Savior that God promised to send. And so the people, they have these expectations of what the, the Christ would be, that he would be a man who would come as a conquering king. That he would come and he would overthrow the oppressive rulers of the day in Rome and that, and that he would uh, deliver them from heavy taxation and oppression and, and abuse and, and that they would live, all of them, in the peaceful rule of the Christ. And so they expect a man like this to come. And as John's preaching, as things are happening with John's ministry, the people begin to think, maybe, maybe this guy's it. And John says, no, I'm not him. The one who's mightier than I, he's talking about the Christ here, is coming still. He's coming after me. And in fact, the strap of his sandal is, I'm not worthy to untie. And so we have to think about this for a moment because, you know, untying sandals, like, okay, big deal for us, Right? But in the ancient world, they would have walked through very dusty, dirty roads that would have been sometimes filled with animal manure and, and other things. And, and so it was a very unclean thing. And they would have walked through these roads with open, open-toed shoes. They would have had sandals on, strapped to their feet with straps that were tied. And so to untie someone's sandals was, was, was reserved for the lowest of low. A a rabbi's own disciples could not untie the straps of his sandals because even they weren't considered that low. Even even they were worthy of more than that. And and so for John to say, as, as the prophet sent by God to speak God's words to God's people, for him to say, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals is to say, something incredibly humble about himself and incredibly exalting of who God is. You see, John realizes something about his position before God that that you and I need to realize as well. That this one who has come, that he is, is mightier than us, that he is holier than us, that he is perfect in every way, and that our, our sin results in us not having a standing before him. John, John knows this about us. He knows this about himself. So when the people begin to say, are, are you the Christ? He says, no. He says, I'm not worthy to untie the Christ's sandals. I'm not worthy of him. And just as a, as a side note, a preacher's job is always to point you to Jesus. That's never to point you to themselves, to yourself, to someone else. It's never to give you confidence in anything but Jesus. John, as he's preaching, he has this incredible response. He has people responding left and right. He has people coming to hear what he's saying. And you can imagine the kind of temptation that he would have had here. They're thinking he's the Christ. You know, you and I, we've never had anybody think that we're the Messiah. 
right? I mean, my preaching is just not that good, right? It's, it's just it's not good enough for somebody to think I'm, I'm the Messiah, the Christ sent from him. And so for John to have this kind of response where people are thinking that he is the Christ, that kind of temptation I can't imagine. But what John does is instructive for us because he, he doesn't say, yeah, God's doing some incredible things in me. I'm awesome, and you should look at what I have to say. He says, no, the one who's mightier than I is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Look to him. John, John is getting people ready to hear from Jesus and to follow Jesus and to trust in Jesus. He's preparing people for what God is doing through the Christ. You see, that's our job as well, is to point people to Jesus, not just preachers, Christians. This is our job. This is our task. This is what we've been instructed to do is to point people to Christ and, and to help them to see that it's, it's futile and vain to trust in ourselves. It, you know, so often, there, there's kind of these two things that I see. There's, in culture, I see oftentimes this idea that, that we are enough, that, that you can trust in yourself, that you can follow your heart, that, you, that it will lead you in the way that you should go, that, that you, you know, Kelly Clarkson sings this one song, and, and there's this line in it where, where she says, I'm enough. I'm beautiful and I'm enough, right? And, and, and just to be fair, like, I actually love the song. Like, it sounds really good. It sounds catchy and, and I enjoy it. But, but that line in the song just strikes me every time because what happens when you're not enough? What happens when you come to a place in life where you, where you realize you're not self-sufficient? Or you get to a spot in life where this message that culture is sending you that you should trust in yourself because that's what leads to happiness and joy when it actually fails you. You see, if, if what we believe is that we should be pointed to ourselves or we should be pointed to trusting in, in a great speaker or leader, those things always fall short. They always, they always do because there's not one of us who is worthy to untie his sandals. And we will always struggle. We will always sin until Jesus cleanses us and drives that out, until he comes one day again to restore what has gone wrong and to wipe every tear from our eyes. You see, the other thing that I see often is, particularly in Christian contexts, in churches, as people will, will come to a church because they, they, they kind of like the pastor, they kind of like maybe his preaching style or the, some of the things that he says and some of the things that he cares about. And, and so they'll come for, for this man or maybe they come for the, the worship or, or whatever it might be. They, they come and, and they start to follow a person. And then down the road, that person fails them too. And all of a sudden, they start to question their faith. All of a sudden, you know, pastor has an affair and, and my faith is rocked. All of a sudden, pastor moves on to a different job and, and I don't know what to do anymore. You see, when we trust in leaders like this as well, that will fail us too. 
You see, I, I, I'm not saying that your, your pastors are always going to commit egregious acts of sin like adultery. What I'm saying is that we all fall short of the glory of God and we can't trust in a human being. And in fact, the role of, of pastors and leaders and, and in fact all of us is to point people to Jesus because he's the only one we can trust in. This is what John knows about himself. He knows that they can't trust in him but that they can trust in the one he's pointing to. And so John preaches this message. He, he, when they ask him this, he, he points him to Jesus because here's what he knows about Jesus. He knows that Jesus, though he is a, a man sent from God, he is also more than a man. You see, John says that Jesus is mightier than him, that the one who's mightier than I is coming. And he talks about Jesus' holiness in such a way that he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. And so what he's saying about Jesus is that Jesus is something completely different than what they're seeing in him. And so look with me at these these few verses here. And and as we look at this, I want want you to see uh, some of the expectations about good news that we have as well. You see, John says that, that the Christ will baptize God's people with God's own spirit and with fire, okay? You see that in verse 17. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John points out that this one who's coming after him is mightier than him, holier than him, and that he's going to baptize God's people with God's spirit or with fire, Only God can baptize people with his spirit or with fire. You see, to baptize means to immerse. We're, we're Baptists, so, so we know baptism, right? We, you know, we've got a big tank back here because we like to immerse people in water because it's this powerful symbol that portrays what God has done in someone's life that they've been united to Jesus by their faith in him and that in so doing, they're immersed in the water to show that they're united by faith with, with Christ in his death and also in his resurrection as they come up out of the water. They're completely covered by Jesus' death. They're immersed in it and then delivered through it. And so, see, to baptize means to immerse, to completely cover. And God, what John just said about the Christ is that the Christ is going to completely immerse or baptize people in God's own spirit. And so, Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize people in God's presence and power. That's what that means. He's going to cover them in God's own spirit. He's going to immerse them in God's spirit. Only God can do that. And he talks about this baptism of fire, which, you know, so, so to be baptized in the Spirit means to be completely immersed in God's Spirit and His presence and His power and, and to be identified with God. But to be baptized by fire, fire in the Scriptures is the symbol of judgment, of punishment for sin. So this baptism of fire is to be consumed by God's judgment on sin. And and verse 17 helps us understand that this is what's happening here because it talks about how this Christ 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. And so here's what's going on here. In the ancient world, you know, as they would, as they would farm and they would farm for wheat, they, they would have these, these forks or these shovels that they would use to, to throw it up into the air. And after they threw it up in the air, the, the wheat it w- was so dense and heavier than the straw that it would fall to the ground. And that's how they would separate it from the, the stuff they didn't need. So by nature, the, the wheat was different than the chaff. And so the wheat would fall to the ground, they would gather it in, and then the chaff, they would, they would burn it because they didn't need it. It was, it was altogether different than the wheat. And so the picture here is that Jesus, the Christ, he's going to come and he's going to distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous, much like a farmer would, his wheat, he's going to gather to himself. And the unrighteous will endure an unquenchable fire. There's going to be this distinguishing aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. The Christ is coming to do this distinguishing work. You see, it's, it, it's not typically what we think about with good news, is it? But the thing about your baptism is your baptism reveals your allegiance. And so to be baptized with God's spirit is to be aligned with God and his people is to belong to him. And to be baptized with, with fire is, is to show that your allegiance is with the enemies of God. John, he says, if that's the place in which we are, he calls us brood of vipers. Brood was offspring, and vipers were this venomous snake. And so the the idea there last week that was that John was saying, you're all sons of Satan. That was his introduction. That's how he started preaching. He said, you're all sons of Satan. You need need to turn from sin, repent, and, 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 and walk towards God and trust in the coming Messiah. And demonstrate that through baptism. And so John says the Christ is going to come and he's going to do this distinguishing work. He's going to either baptize with the Spirit or baptize with fire. But it's not typically what we think of when we think good news. When we think of good news, we don't typically think about preaching about hell and judgment and an unquenchable fire. We don't typically think about that, do we? When we think about good news, when you hear that, that term, you know, we, we tend to think of things like hearing that we got the job, or, or hearing that our loved one is out of surgery and doing well, or, 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 or hearing that someone has had a baby or gotten engaged. We, we tend to think of, of these really good, joyful things when we hear the term good news. But look at verse 18. It says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. You see, so, so there's something here as John is preaching about these things that, that John thinks it's still good news. That what John says about his message is that he's preaching the good news. You see, and the reason that, that this is good news, even preaching about things like hell and judgment on sin and an unquenchable fire, the reason that it's good news is Because what we see here is that there is a God who shows both his grace and giving his spirit to undeserving sinners. 
like John and like you and me. And we also see a God who shows his justice, that he's a just, righteous, good God in judging sin, rebellion, and evil in the world. You see, we need a God who both judges and saves because a God who only does one of these things is completely worthless to us. You see, I, I wouldn't want a God who shows no grace because then I would have no hope. But I also wouldn't want a God who never judges because then I wouldn't have any hope either. You say, what do you mean by that? Let me, let me explain a little bit. We're just as hopeless when God does not judge sin as we are with a God that shows no grace. And, and the reason is because, you know, sometimes we, we want a God of only love and grace, right? We want a God who, who loves people, who loves sinners, you know, and doesn't really judge evil and sin, right? We, we want a God that is all about heaven but not about hell. We want, we want a God who is about the things that we see as good and happy and joyful and, and not any of the things over here. You see, we, we want this kind of a God, but, but what hope does that provide for those of us who suffer great evil in life? What hope does that provide for the rape victim? What hope does a God who does not judge sin and evil provide for the, the women and children who are abused by their husbands and fathers? What hope does it provide for the man who loses his job because people lied about him at work? What hope does it provide for those who have their identity stolen because someone smarter than them hacked into their information and stole it? You see, a God who does not judge evil and sin is a God that provides no hope for you and I. We need a God who is both just and gracious. We need a God who distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, that, that's what gives, that, that kind of God gives people like John hope when they're wrongly imprisoned. Look at verse 19. This is what happens to John after he's been serving the Lord, after he's been preaching God's message to God's people. Here's what happens to John. Here's his fate. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And what we're going to read about later uh, in the Gospels is, is, is we see that John isn't just locked up, but this guy ends up beheading him. And so John gets thrown in prison after serving the Lord. And... A God who cares about justice, a God who judges sin and evil, and who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, is what gives believers like John hope when they're wrongly imprisoned, because they know that's not the end of the story. You see, Proverbs 13.6 says it this way, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. You see, I, uh, there's this movie coming out that I really want to see. I think it's already out. Maybe some of you have seen it, uh, where Michael B. Jordan plays this attorney uh, that's defending this African-American man who's been wrongly imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, 
And, and the idea is that he's, he's advocating for this man's release and fighting for him. Well, righteousness itself fights for the innocent. Righteousness guards those who are righteous. It, it, it protects them in a way, e- e- even when life doesn't make it seem that way. So John, as, he, as he's in prison, it, it, it doesn't seem in that kind of a moment, or, or pastors overseas who are imprisoned for sharing their faith and preaching the word of God, when they're imprisoned, or, or here, when we're ridiculed for our faith and the things that we believe, it doesn't seem that way, does it? It doesn't seem like our righteousness is guarding us. And it doesn't seem like sin is overthrowing the wicked. But see, this, this truth is true even when it doesn't look like it. Because eventually, righteousness does prove that it's been guarding the innocent. Righteousness eventually wins out. Whether it's the, the lawyer wins the case and the innocent man is delivered to freedom, or whether it's at the end of days, when Jesus the Christ comes back and sets the captives free and overthrows the wicked because of their sin. You see, one day, for, for the innocent, for the righteous, they'll be delivered, finally. If it doesn't happen now, sometimes it does. Sometimes God sees fit to, to, to work in those ways. And if it doesn't happen now, one day it will. And, and, and for the wicked, for those who have sinned against God and sinned against others, for those who are guilty of the crimes, whether it seems like it now or not, eventually they will be imprisoned for their crimes. And they will endure the unquenchable fire of God's justice. You see, God, even when it doesn't seem like it, cares about the oppressed. Even when it doesn't seem like it, he's a God of both justice and mercy and grace. And so, so John preaches this God's message boldly, as, as you and I should. Because this kind of God gives us actual hope. Whereas a God who doesn't care about one or the other of these things doesn't. You see, knowing that this God judges evil and and gives grace to sinners should should give us courage to proclaim the things that we believe, to share them with the people around us. I just talked with with somebody yesterday about how at work they they were sharing what the Bible has to teach about sexuality and gender in an environment where it just didn't make sense that anyone would listen. And, and they had an opportunity for, for 15 to 20 minutes to talk about God's goodness and his design and to talk about the hope that is in Christ. You see, but sometimes people don't listen and sometimes they ridicule us and, and one day we might be imprisoned for proclaiming these things. But like John, we have to get to know this God so that we have hope and we continue steadfastly. 
We have to continue to hope in the God who is a God of justice and mercy. We have to hope in this kind of God, the God who is actually real, who is actually true, who is actually present. You see, but here's the other problem. You see, you and I, when when we honestly talk through this, we we can wrap our minds around a a God who judges gruesome evil and and protects the innocent and cares for the oppressed. We, We can get behind that. We can understand that. We want a God who does that. But the harder truth, the, the one that we really struggle to believe is the truth about us. Is the truth that we are evil and not innocent. That we too, are, like John, are unworthy to untie the straps of his sandals. That we are just as much deserving of God's judgment as anyone. You see, we, we want a God that'll judge the evil of the abusive man who harms his family, but not the pride that lives in our own hearts and tells us that we're more important than those around us. We want a God who judges the murderer, but not the anger in our own hearts that seeks the destruction of another's life, whether it be at work for our own gain and advancement, or whether it be on social media as we tear people down from behind a keyboard. We want the God who judges the rapist or the child predator, but not the lust in our own hearts that leads us to sleep with whomever we want, however we would like to, just like Herod did. You see, we want a God who judges the evil in others, but not in us. This is one of our greatest problems. Because we, we don't say with John the things that he says we don't follow his example in this, this, this humble faith that he has when he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. You see, you and I, we often struggle to have that kind of humble faith where we're honest about not just who God is, but who we are and our need for his grace. You see, we have, to, we have to recognize as well that we're not worthy sons and throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of God's beloved son. You see, because he was obedient where we were only disobedient. He was righteous where we are wicked. He did right where we only did wrong. And, and the reason he does, he, he did it for us that we might turn to him and receive his spirit, that we might receive the baptism of his spirit, that we might receive the gift of God himself, his own presence and power to walk with him and trust in him and live life to the glory of his name. He did it for us that we might receive his spirit and life everlasting. Which brings us to expectations of God. Look with me at verses 21 and 22 here. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So what do you expect God to be like? What do you think about when when you hear that word, when, when, when somebody says God, what do you think about? 
You know, sometimes we think about kind of this, this, this angry old man in the sky that kind of has some, some lightning bolts and he's just going to throw him on, on whoever is kind of out of line or, or whoever is doing something that's, that, you know, they're having a little fun. Uh, it tends to be kind of this, this strange picture we have of, of God that I think is rooted much more in, in ancient heresies and ancient myths than it is in Scripture. You see, we, we tend to think all sorts of things about God, but, but, but most of what we think about God is not the biblical picture of God, of who God is. And here in these couple of verses, we see just a glimpse of, of who this amazing God is. We, we see first that this God is, is triune. He's three in one. He's one God existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So let's talk about the Spirit for a minute, that, that third person of the Trinity. First, first of all, when, when we say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, we're not saying he's in third place. He, he, he's equal to the Father and the Son. He is just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. He is God the Spirit. And next we have to talk about how the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. He is the personal presence and power of God himself that indwells believers, that that lives inside the believer in Christ, that empowers and helps the believer to live for Christ, that sanctifies the believer in Christ. He cleanses us, he makes us new, and and he, he makes us more like Jesus each and every day. He gives gifts to the believer in Christ. He he brings about spiritual fruit in the believer in Christ. And ultimately, the scriptures tell us, especially in John, when we read about the Spirit, that he points us to Christ. You see, John the Baptist, who was filled with the Spirit from even his mother's womb, spent his whole life pointing people to Jesus. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit doesn't point to himself. He points to Christ. Next, we have to talk about the Father. This, so we see in our passage that not only is the Holy Spirit present, but also there's this voice that comes from heaven that speaks to Jesus and calls him a son. So we see that God is also a father. You see, God the Father speaks from heaven, but maybe we struggle to think about God in that way. Maybe when, when you hear the word father, it just doesn't have some some good associations for you. Maybe you remember the, the grumpy old man who just made life difficult, to say the least, and, and maybe it was worse for you. Maybe you don't have a good relationship with your dad, and so to think about God as a father is, is really hard for you. I want you to see just a couple of things that the scriptures say about this father because I think you'll see that he's different than what you've seen in life. You see, Paul puts it this way. Listen to what he says about the father and what we get from God being our father. It says, he says in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, grace to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
and love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Luke 3, we just read that Jesus was the beloved son. And what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has poured out in extravagant ways his blessing is on us in that beloved son. You see, Paul just told us that we receive from God the Father grace and peace that we receive every spiritual blessing, that we're, we're chosen by him, that he picks us, that he loves us, that he makes us holy and blameless in his beloved son, that, that he has loved us and adopted us. He planned to adopt us. That was, that was his plan for us. Out of love. You want to know what predestination is all about? Just a 30-second snippet. Predestination isn't about most of the things that we debate. Predestination is about how our God has radically loved us and chosen to pursue us in love and, and that he would adopt us before we would ever even look at him. Predestination is about the radical love of God for those who don't deserve it. It's about the love of a father who chooses to love his sons and daughters even though they're not worthy to untie sandals. It's about how God has chosen to adopt us as his own, to make us his own in Christ, and that he has loved us in such a way and planned to do so, knowing the ways in which we would rebel against him, that he's loved us in this way despite us. That's what it's all about. This, this father's incredible, magnificent, great love for his kids. That he wants to pour out every blessing on them in his beloved son. And that's where we'll end is with his beloved son. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, uh, 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 anointing Jesus, showing that Jesus is the beloved Son, and, and then the voice from heaven gives, uh, the Father gives his affirmation that this is his beloved Son, that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, and that he's pleased with this Son. And Jesus, he, he gets baptized. Did you notice that? Jesus, who is, is not sinful, he's in fact sinless, and he doesn't need repentance or cleansing, yet he gets baptized. And it's because he's come to identify with us. It's because he's come to stand in our place. In the Old Testament, we read this, and in the New Testament, we read this, this term, son of God, we read it about both Adam, and we also read about Israel. They were both called the Son of God. And the thing is, is that these sons of God, they rebelled against God. They failed to do what God had asked them to do, and they failed to walk in his good commandments that were meant for their joy. They did not do what God had made them to do. In fact, they rejected their sonship. They rejected their father. And walked away from him. And, and this Christ, he comes 
to be the beloved son who will stand in their place and do what they could not do, do what they should have done on their behalf, and then he will take the punishment that they deserve so that if they will repent, as John has been proclaiming, and turn towards God away from their sin and trust in him, then they can once again be beloved sons. You see, Jesus gets baptized to show that just like, just like Israel had to pass through the waters of baptism, just like as God was delivering them, they passed through water, Jesus shows up as God's beloved son to stand in their place to do what they could not do and in fact did not do. And he goes through the waters as well to show his identification with them that he's standing in their place and in fact in ours. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the God-man. He is fully and completely God, and he is fully and completely man. He is the only one that could mediate between God and men, because he's the only one who has these qualities. As God, he can do what we did not and could not do. And as man, he can legitimately stand in our place and take our punishment. So that if we'll trust in him, if we'll trust in the beloved son, we can be beloved sons as well. So that's the question. Is will you hear John's message? Will you turn from sin and trust in the beloved son of God? Who's laid his life down for you. So that you might be a beloved son forever. Let's pray. Father God, we are in desperate need of your grace and mercy. And God, we rejoice even now in the fact that you are just. God, we're grateful that you continue to work in our lives in incredible ways. As, as, as a father, you bless us in extravagant ways that are only deserving of a son and yet we've done nothing to deserve being your sons or your daughters. God, you've in fact sent your son for us that we might once again be your sons and daughters. And God, you've filled us with your spirit. You've baptized us in your power and presence and you're with us even now. And so we rejoice and we give you all the glory and we ask that you would help us to turn and to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.